enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest escapes these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today's show is a very special one over on the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast stream. I've just been overloaded with wonderful guests, and it's a great problem to have. So this episode is not only a great one for this feed, but originally it was going to be on the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast. But again, there's just so many great episodes coming up over there, and I wanted to get this one out as soon as possible because our guest today, Haley Chura, just did an amazing thing at the California International Marathon. And I really wanted to share it because this is a professional triathlete who has done wonderful things at the Ironman and half Ironman distances and has also overcome a lot as well. And this past year decided after the world championships, not after, but she decided this before the world championships, but after the world championships in September, she dedicated herself to running completely in an effort to get her Olympic trials qualifying time in the marathon. And while she's run plenty of marathons as part of Ironman, this was the first time in a very, very, very long time where she has, you know, run one on its own and really trained hard for it. And I couldn't wait to talk to her, not only about this conversion, but also about the, uh, the crash that she had in 2015, which led her to basically not run a workout for almost a year and a half. And here she is, an Olympic trials qualifier, and I could not wait to share this story with you. Also, just a heads up, she hosts her own podcast, the Iron Woman Podcast, so you'll hear us reference this later on in the episode, and I want to make mention of it now because you should definitely go check it out. So, without further ado, here is my episode with Haley Chura. Hello, Haley, and thank you for hopping on the show. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, what an exciting week. You just kicked some serious butt uh, last weekend at the California International Marathon, 243.19. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. It was. It's still sinking in a little. I don't know if it's quite sunk in yet, but I'm pretty excited and pretty happy about that. Well, I'll tell you what, I just gave your lengthy bio in the introduction. There's so much there that we could talk about. We were just joking before the call about how like we could just talk about your bio for two hours and not even get to CIM. And that certainly is not going to be part of the plan. But before we get into the race itself, which is obviously so exciting and everyone has seen the finish line photos and, and videos, which are just so evocative and so full of emotion for everybody involved. At what point did you decide that qualifying for the Olympic trials was going to be a goal for you? So as you mentioned, my background isn't necessarily in running. Um, I was a swimmer growing up and then I am a professional triathlete currently. And I think it was about a year ago, um, so December 2018, that one of my really good friends, Shelly, she who follows a lot of running. She follows a lot of, of the runners and she's a runner. Um, she's a former swimmer and actually a runner. And she asked me if I thought I could do it. She said, you know, do you think you could run under 245 for the marathon? And I answered, absolutely not. You know, that's way too fast. And I haven't run a standalone marathon in more than a decade. And I've run a couple of Ironmans, but that's just different. You're running a marathon after 112 mile bike ride and a 2.4 mile swim. So I, I didn't think I could. And, but because of Shelly asking me that question, I kind of started doing a little research and I, I looked and I learned that you could qualify all the way up till January, 2020. And I realized that if I, I could do a full triathlon season in 2019, at that point, my goal was to race in the 70.3 World Championships in Nice, France. And I knew I was going there. I'd already qualified, which was in September. And I realized that I probably could, you know, do a little training block and at least go for it, at least go for the trials cut at CIM in December. And so I give Shelly a lot of credit for kind of putting the idea in my head. I think I first talked to my coach, Matthew Rose, um, who's my triathlon coach about it, maybe in February. And um, and I think it caught him off guard a little bit, but he thought about it and was like, hey, I kind of like this idea. And 
So it was in the back of our minds. I signed up for CIM, but to be perfectly honest, I wasn't fully committed to training for it until September of 2019. So I, I even coming out of 70.3 worlds, I was like, ah, maybe I should just do another triathlon and focus on that. But Matthew kind of kept me, kept me, you know, focused on that goal that I had set earlier and like, no, let's do this. It's a worthy goal. It's going to be really fun. Let's just see if you can do it. So it wasn't like a lifelong dream necessarily, but I was pretty focused on it. And the Olympic trials are very important to me, both in the sense of it being the Olympic trials, since I do have that swimming background and the Olympic trials are such a big deal in swimming. And then also in the fact that it's in Atlanta, which is where I lived for 10 years. It's where I started triathlon. It's where I kind of really got into endurance sport. And it's just a very, very important city to me. So did your training, um, I guess when, when Matt was, was, Looking at your training, and I'm sure it's you know a process where you guys do have plenty of communication. You're talking all the time. Did your training differ at all, or was there any alterations with this potential OTQ in mind? You know, through the summer months, or was that something that you were able to segment completely and not have it influence your preparation for Worlds? I think there was. I don't know if we expressly talked about it, but I think Matthew had me running a little bit more, a little bit longer going into 70.3 Worlds. And when I say that, like even when I'm doing an Ironman, I probably run 30 to 35 miles a week. So it's not very much. So I um, I think there was a little bit, but in my mind, I was completely focused on the 70.3 worlds. And then it was the day after that, that I was like, okay, now I shift to marathon. So I think he did put some things in there. He has alluded to that. But again, I'm sort of the type of athlete that follows the plan, believes in the plan regardless. And, and that that's kind of what I did. And so it, things changed pretty drastically after that race. I cut back on my swim and my bike significantly and increased the run as much as my body could handle, which probably in runner terms, wasn't very much. But for me, it was a lot. Well, I can't wait to talk about that part. And, and before we do, let's talk about, you know, as you phrase it, which is the perfect way to phrase it, how as much as your body can handle, because not only are you not coming from a traditional running background leading into this marathon cycle, but back in 2015, I think is the, the correct year. And please correct me if I'm wrong. You had a devastating um, you know, accident on the bike leading into Kona, the world championships for triathlon that really set you back athletically and specifically, uh, in a running perspective. Yes. And I like to use the term crash rather than accident, which I think is important because I was hit by a car An accident implies that no one was at fault, that it just kind of happened. And in this case, someone was definitely at fault. The driver was at fault. And it was my last long training ride before the 2015 World Cha Ironman World Championships in Kona, which anyone who follows the Ironman or the triathlon world probably, or many people who don't know, that's a really big deal. And I was basically the fittest I'd ever been in my entire life. I was having a fantastic ride and there was one car on the road and the one car hit me. And it really shocked me more than anything because I was like, how does this happen? And um, especially when I felt like I was doing everything right in the moment. I it was riding early in the morning on a Sunday morning. Again, there was a low traffic area. And I um it, it changed, it changed me a lot. And I sustained lower leg injuries. I was, I hate to use the term lucky, but I was kind of lucky in that the injuries were not life-threatening, but they were career-threatening. And when you are, when you make your your living off of your body, it's it's extremely difficult. And so I it took me, it took me a very long time to come back from that. I both physically and mentally. Um, mentally, I just, honestly, I didn't really want to go outside much to, I didn't even want to be a pedestrian on the street, let alone drive in a car or be a cyclist. And that took a lot of time. Um, a lot of talking to people, talking to professionals, you know, a therapist that helped me realize I wasn't, you know, it's worth the risk. You know, we can't just live our lives in a bubble. And, and then it was also physically, I, I, um, I was in a boot for a really long time. I kind of came back too quick. I learned that and ended up back in a boot. And um, I, I give my coach, I give Matthew a ton of credit because 
During that time, he was so patient with me. And we both knew I might never race again. And he still, he still like supported me. And he he said that it's okay if you never race again. And, you know, just take as much time as you need. And I really give him a lot of credit because it did, it took me. I mean, I guess I my first the the crash was in September and I ran in physical therapy in February. And my first run back was one minute on a treadmill with the physical therapist. And I was so scared. I just, I thought my leg was going to like shatter and it felt so terrible. And I just could never imagine running a marathon ever again. But with patience and proper recovery and giving myself so much time, it, it I came back. And I think, honestly, my first hard workout was a year and a half post-crash, my first hard running workout. And, and that's a long time to wait. And But because I think we waited that long, I've actually had my best running performances since then. And I've had no injuries since then. And I think that's where a lot of my recent run success has just come from that consistency, that lack of injury, and letting my body fully heal after that injury. And obviously getting back to full health and being able to race again is one thing. Performing at a level that you've never that you've never reached before is a completely different matter. And when you when you talk about not only the physical rehabilitation for you, what was the mental rehabilitation like once you started running again? And obviously you took it slow and I've heard you and other shows talk about how you guys were even going slower than the doctors had advised because you really wanted to be patient and to do this the right way and not to have another setback and, and things along those lines. As you progress to the point where like, wow, like I might not only get back to full strength, but be faster than before. What was that like for you personally in terms of not only the excitement of you know reaching a new tier within athletics, but also you know, you live a very public life. You have you know a lot of different outlets through which you communicate, and we'll talk about those near the end of the show. But what was it like for you, kind of spreading that message of patience and persistence to all the people that you normally communicate with? So to be honest, I think for the year after the crash, I I wasn't very public. I. Prior to that, I had a blog, I had posted more, and I was having a really hard time. And part of that was just kind of getting back within myself, talking only to my trusted advisors. I did see um, a therapist, and that was something I'd never done before, and I loved it. It was one of the best experiences, just for, both for for everything, you know. And it, I remember sitting in that therapist's office and. The day I said, like, I wasn't afraid to ride on the bike again, ride outside. And that was really powerful. So I, I think there is a lot of power in, in talking to someone, whether it is a therapist or your coach or your friend. And I used all of those avenues. And I, I think I, I kind of was at peace with the idea that I might not compete at the same level again. So that when I did do, when I did start another race, um, almost a year later, I I wasn't nervous in the same way that I had been before. I think before the crash, I was nervous about performance and what place I got. And after the crash, I honestly was a little bit nervous that could I do the distance? And um, so that was a little bit different, you know, having that sort of nerves. And I was very, very kind to myself in those first races. And honestly, all the races since then, if I fall behind on the bike, I I make a promise that I only say good things to myself. You know, there is no mentally beating myself up. Same with the run. If I blow up, it's like, okay, you found your limit today. And and then when I finished races, even if I was a place that was so much further behind, a time that was so much slower than before, I celebrated that. You know, you kind of set these new targets where it's like, okay, my post-crash PR. And I think that's healthy, you know, to celebrate it, to find something good in that moment. And then when things started to get really good, like in 2017, I just had this amazing year and I just celebrated every single part of it. And I think everyone around me did. I mean, we just, we just had so much fun and 
I I recognized that it was amazing that this had happened, that I'd been given a second chance. And so even when I had some ups and downs in some of those races, I kept that same, that same thought process of only happy thoughts during the race, only good things. You can always find something good. Even if you're in last place by 10 minutes, it's like, wow, my kit looks awesome today. You know, <laughs> you can find something. And so that's kind of what I've focused on a little more. And it gets harder with time because you still, once you start having some actual like performance gains again, and you hit these times, you always want a little more, but I always go back to kind of thinking about who I was standing on that start line of that first race and how nervous I was about the distance and appreciating now that I can hurt from effort rather than pain. And it's such a good hurt. And so I just started to try to like lean into that and embrace it even and, and tell myself it will end, you know, this isn't forever, but you get another chance. So enjoy it. And that mindset shift that you just described is so powerful. And, and it's interesting because it's not as if you came from a place of, you know, maybe being, you know, not that competitive and just kind of building, building, building. And, and this kind of mindset just kind of like germinated throughout that process. You know, you guys won a national title, right, at Georgia, and you were an elite triathlete pre-crash. So what's it like for you to all of a sudden kind of adopt this much more holistic mindset as opposed to kind of that like type A, ultra competitive, you everything through that lens mindset that you had pre-crash? I think it's made me a better coach for one thing. I think that that significantly changed. I don't coach many athletes, but I coach a few triathletes and runners and it's made me a more empathetic, compassionate person, I think to, and probably better at coaching athletes who have come back from injuries or are going through an injury or just any kind of setback in life, because it might even be, you know, something hard at work. And I think I'm better to, to handle that and to also understand that there's plenty of time, you know, I could have been really wrapped up and my coach could have been really wrapped up in, in 2015. And, oh my goodness, we need to get you back on a start line as fast as possible. And, um, you're going to lose sponsors and, Yes, you probably will lose sponsors. You might miss out on prize money, but in the long term, like long term thinking, it's better to get back to full health and come back at this healthier and be patient. And I think that's what it's taught. And also, sometimes you just have to take risks. I think I've taken a lot more risks, you know, risks since then. Um, I, I in 2017, I I did what my coach called the the North Star approach to racing and. I just decided I wanted to race in really cool places. And before, I think I was a little bit more financially minded and trying to figure out like what makes sense, racing close to home, saving every penny. And in 2017 and a little bit in 2016, I didn't race much in 2016, but um, I was like, you know what? Where do I want to go? Okay, I'm gonna that ticket is ridiculously expensive, but I want to go there. And I think that gave my racing a new purpose and a new meaning. And and again, I'm not, I don't have wanderlust. I'm a homebody. I love staying home, but I got to have these new experiences that I probably would have been afraid to take otherwise. And, and I look back and I'm really, really thankful for that. So it definitely has changed me. I'm a totally different person. And again, I wouldn't wish for this to happen to anyone. I wouldn't wish it on my, my worst enemy. It's been, it was, there were moments that were completely terrible, but I'm really proud of myself for how I have found some silver linings and how I've reacted to a pretty bad situation. That's a great way of putting it. Cause that, that was going to be the question I was going to ask. So I appreciate you just saying it right from the start about like, all right, would you go through it again? It's like, yeah, I want I want to take the lessons I've learned, but maybe not experience the trauma of that entire exactly. experience. I don't want to go through it again. No. <laughs> and if I could change things, I wouldn't have it happen. But again, I'm proud of myself for learning from it. Right. And I think one thing for a lot of people who are very competitive and kind of adopting that, you know, that ultra on the edge competitive nature, the idea of stepping back from it and taking a mindful, holistic approach to our running and racing and, you know, and, and things like that is that this assumption that, well, if I, if I adopt that mantra, then I might just like rationalize, like, you know, not not performing well, or maybe I won't be able to compete at this high level. If I give myself an inch, I'll take a foot or, you know, th this idea of 
if I'm not, you know, all out going nuts mentally, that somehow my physical performance is going to be affected. And it seems like you've had the exact opposite experience from that. I think what has happened is that I I look back on my swimming career a lot and the things I learned from some, from swimming at the University of Georgia and being around some really really elite swimmers. And I realized I did things wrong in my swimming career and I probably I honestly probably tried too hard at times. And I even remember a coach saying that to me once when I was doing I was a backstroker and I was doing some 50s backstroke and and she was like, "Hey, relax a little. Like don't try as hard." And I went faster. And so I don't think that always putting in maximum effort is the best is the best way to do things. Sometimes you have to take a nap. Sometimes you have to take a step back and you have to let your body recover and you do come back better and or you just have to stress less about things, you know, watch a movie. And these are things that I struggle with. You know, I, I it's easy for me to come onto a podcast and say, "Oh yeah, just do it. Just be relaxed." And I'm not. I'm a pretty high stress person most of the time, but uh, these are the things I still tell myself today. And again, I've seen extremely elite level athletes and what they did. And it's, it is about energy management and being on at the right time. And that doesn't mean you have to be on all the time. Man, what a way with words. You just said that so well. Thank you for sharing that, that what that last little bit of like, you know, being on you know, like not all of the time does not necessarily mean that you're not going to be on at the right time. And, and that's exactly right. And I can totally see how a lot of people can take a lot from, you know, from that motto right there. And going back to September, right? You're at Worlds, you're post-Worlds. What was your fitness level like at that point, both generally speaking and in the run? So September 2019, I was pretty fit. I was really focused on that race. And I know you've had Sarah Bishop on your podcast and she gave a very, very detailed description of that course and specifically the bike course. And I would agree 100% with her description. It was terrifying. <laughs> it was, um, uh, I don't know if, if you live in the United States where you could train. So to like simulate that course, I think without going to France and actually training on the course, you're, you're at a disadvantage. So I was very fit. I didn't have exactly the race I wanted coming out of that, but I did have a really solid run, even after a, a really stressful bike. And I um I ran, I think, a 122 off on that run course. And I will say now that I've run a marathon for time, like triathlon running is very, very different than just a standalone half marathon or marathon. It's you you aren't worried as much about pacing, especially in the pro field. It is more about going for it. I, I wear a watch, but I I don't look at it that often in in a run off the bike in a triathlon run. It's more tactical, like you're chasing people down, you're trying to look good when you pass certain people, that kind of thing. And um, and then you always feel really, really bad in the initial miles because you're coming off of a bike. Um, a really hard bike ride. You've been kind of horizontal for a while and now you're vertical. And so it's just a very, very different experience. So I was very happy to run a 122 on that day on what I could consider a pretty hard day. And I did use that race as sort of um, a, a sign that, yes, I I don't think a 245 is crazy. You know, if I can run a 122 half on not a good day, then surely, hopefully with more specific training, maybe I can run a 245. So it did give me some confidence. Oh, I can imagine, right? You're probably looking at it like, hey, I just ran my goal marathon pace off the bike. And after this, you know, crazy, crazy um, bike split, you know, I mean, bike course. And, you know, you still had a bunch of months to, to, to keep training. So I can see where you'd be coming into this feeling confident certainly having a level of optimism going into it. So what were some of the keys to the training block that you and Matthew came up with in terms of what you needed to work on specifically for the standalone marathon? 
So I think the biggest one was volume. I mean, I had done quite a bit of speed work leading into 70.3 Worlds and through the season, you know, training more for a half Ironman or half marathon off the bike. So getting my volume up was was difficult. And then also doing that while acknowledging that I've never run that much. So I um I think we were we were pretty good. I the most I ever got up to, I think, was a 70-mile week which was a lot for me. I, I, again, I had to kind of disengage from some of the social media and like following other runners and people training for CIM because I would see people running hundred mile weeks. And I was, I just can't even fathom that right now. I think that if I, if I focused for a whole nother year, maybe I could get to that, but 70 miles a week was crushing me, you know? And it was so fascinating because uh, overall hours of training were so much lower than what I normally do triathlon wise, but running is really hard. And it gave me a lot of respect for those runners who can handle hundred mile weeks, because even though your hours might not be that much, it's, it's really hard. And there was no point during any of my training when I wished any of my runs were longer. I would see a five mile run on my schedule and wish it was three miles. <laughs> and, um, to be honest, and I was pretty tired and, but I was always checking in structurally, like how are things feeling knowing that even, you know, I just in three months, like doubled my run mileage and I needed to be careful because I know this a little bit from my background as a swimmer and I'd run a little bit, but the problem when you're, when you're a good swimmer is that you have a really big aerobic engine, but you aren't, your body isn't necessarily ready for the impact of running. And so it takes some time, but I think we were really smart about it. And, and I, 70 miles was enough in this case. Did you have to do any extra body work or stuff with PT to make sure that you were going to be healthy for race day that you maybe didn't need to do when you weren't being much more running specific? Maybe I should have, but I didn't. I'm not a huge fan of massage, which is probably like a blasphemous thing to say on here. But um, I, I do a lot of kind of 15-minute strength exercises that are like no um, equipment or maybe a band, um, that kind of thing, just some and some very light core and mobility work. And I would do those pretty frequently. And I think that helped a lot for, um, just for overall health, which honestly is something I do when I'm doing triathlon as well. And I did have, I, I did a plyometric session that was slightly different than what I do when I do, um, when I'm training for triathlon and a slightly different strength session. So I, I did incorporate quite a bit of that. It wasn't drastically different than I do as a triathlete, but it was a little bit more run specific. And honestly, I slept probably more than I have since I was an infant. <laughs> um, and, and that was, again, I was so tired. I mean, there were times when I think if I didn't set an alarm, I probably could have slept like 18 hours. I'm not even exaggerating. I was shocked. And that, that I didn't expect that. And um, again, it, it made me respect running a lot and just how much it takes out of you. Right. Because it's not as if you hadn't run marathons before. You'd, in fact, done them after, you know, hours and hours of high level exercise, uh, you know, during races. So it is so interesting to hear you say all of that, considering, you know, your high level, you know, athletic background where you you know put in so many hours and miles, you know, in all three disciplines. It is so interesting to hear that. And I have to assume that the one of the biggest differences in this training cycle for you was the long run. Let's talk about that and how you progressed through your long runs and what some of those last couple looked like um, at near the end of your cycle. Yeah. So I definitely ran longer than I ever do training for a triathlon, even an Ironman. I think Ironman, I typically get up to like an 18 mile long run. And for this, um, for this marathon, we, my coach and I, we do a lot on time like this. We did a mixture of time and mileage, but I did all of my long runs. I think I did on soft, soft surfaces. To be honest, I do almost, I do every run, almost every run I do on soft surfaces, um, either the treadmill or trails or maybe a dirt road. Very occasionally the track. I live in Montana. So most of this running or most of this training was done basically in winter. Our winter came pretty early this year. I think we had snow in September. So 
Um, I wasn't on the track at all, but between the trails and the treadmill is, is how I do most of my training. And so the trail conditions can vary a lot. So I think my longest run by mileage was 25 miles, which was done on a dirt and gravel road. And that one shocked me because I think it was a, it was written as a three hour, 20 minute run. And it was just go by feel. And I was shocked I got that far, <laughs> to be honest, because a lot of the runs, other runs I've done, um, I would do on trails that are just a lot more variations. Sometimes I run into mud. And I think my longest duration run was I did a, it wasn't supposed to be this long, but I ran into some mud. It was like three hours and 50 minutes, but it was only 21 miles because I ran into some mud and you're just walking through it. And it was, um, you know, it's not even really running at that point, but I do think the trails make me pretty, um, strong. Like that's honestly part of it. Like, I feel like I get pretty strong from running on, on soft surfaces and I, it mixes things up in my brain a lot and I really enjoy it. And I get to do some hills and, it's also very easy in my body because to be honest, since I came back from, from that crash in 2015, I've run very little on asphalt or concrete or hard surfaces. And I think just because my, I hurt so much when I first was coming back. And so that's just continued. And yes, it's slower. I mean, it's hard when you're trying, if you're trying to hit a certain pace, which is why I add in the treadmill, but it, I find I recover faster and mentally it's just a lot more fun. And again, I live in Montana where it's probably a little easier to find soft surfaces than if you live in a big city. So how were you feeling one week out from the race in terms of where you thought your fitness was and any potential race strategy that you and Matthew had in mind? So one week out, I think I felt pretty terrible. I think I was honestly questioning whether it was even a feasible goal. And I was nearly ready to like not even get on that flight to Sacramento. And um, so there, yeah, it was, I, and Matthew did remind me that I had, you know, I still had six days of rest coming and that would make a significant difference in how I felt. And I, um, you know, I was going to go to sea level, which was going to help that the course suited me that it was, I wasn't going to be running in snow because that was part of it. So a week out was Thanksgiving ish. After that, we got so much snow. I was out running like 12 minute mile pace, which is nowhere near <laughs> 245 pace and struggling. And I was really cold. And so honestly, I was in a, I wasn't in the best place. And I don't think that's that unusual. I think once you start resting and sometimes when you start cutting back, your body doesn't always react right away. And sometimes you feel worse before you feel better. And so it wasn't until oh, maybe Friday before the race, which is pretty close, that I was like, okay, maybe I can do this. Um, and that was part of that was getting to sea level and even that day I had a little bit of issue. And even Saturday, the day before the race, when I did like a 30 minute jog, I felt pretty terrible. So, but again, I, I have a long history of racing and I know that you can feel terrible the day before the race and still have a good race. I know that you can feel terrible during the race. And if you have a lot of work behind you, you can still have a solid day, even if it feels terrible. So I drew from that past experience, even though I felt pretty bad in the week before. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I can't wait to hear your perceptions of the the starting groups because, on some level, you're perfectly used to starting in you know big groups, right? Like I'm imagining, you know, the Kona start where everyone's in the water, the gun goes off, the cannon goes off, and you know you have this mass swim, bodies everywhere, so on and so forth. And yet, with a lot of your triathlons, you know, you're coming, you're starting the run, and you're usually, you know anything but in a group, right? Either solo or maybe a person here or a person there kind of dotted on the course. What was it like for you, not only at the starting line, but, you know, those first, you know, shoot, for you, you're probably in a pretty large group almost the entire way. But what was it like for you running in this mass of women where you're usually not in that situation? I can't. Bringing up Kona, oh my goodness, now you like got my heart racing. I did race Kona four times as an amateur when they had the mass start, which they don't have anymore. Now it's it's waves. And when you race as a pro, your your start group is a little smaller. And 
Kona is the worst ever. I thought I was going to die. And I'm a very strong swimmer. So that it wasn't as bad as that. <laughs> um, uh, but um, it was like you said, it was, it was, it was really weird. I, um, I have, again, I haven't run a regular marathon. I have run, I have run a couple before, but not since 2008. So it had been a long time. And even the last one I did in 2008 was fairly small. So it was really bizarre to have so many people around and, everyone really fast. And I also realized CIM is is a kind of unique race in that way because so many people are using it to go for qualification times, whether it's Olympic trials, whether it's Boston, whether it's just a fast time. And the nice thing was that um, in the starting corral, I, I had people who were going for the same time, that 245 time around me. And even though I, I started in the kind of general admission um, start wave, which was a little bit back, which added a little bit of stress, I knew that those people were doing the same thing and I wasn't alone in that. And I think that it it was fun. Part of it was really fun because I think sometimes when you're when you are racing by yourself and you are you feel kind of alone and there was no way you could feel alone at CIM. I mean, it and and it, I was a little nervous about jostling or just like getting a hit or something like that, but people were very very respectful and even later in the race when um the the we'd come up on the pro or the elite women's like fluid stations a lot of the men would move over and and I would move over with them as well since I didn't have any fluids in the elite stations. But I thought that was really respectful and very nice. And people were very aware that it was crowded and, and they recognized that it wasn't just about them, that a lot of people were going for goals of their own. Now, you did a great job of, of pacing throughout this race. I was you know, on the, the CIM website and looking at your splits and they are, I mean, no one's going to be perfectly uniform over two hours and 45 minutes or so, but it's really close to that. So first of all, congratulations. And second of all, at what point in the race did you start feeling uncomfortable to uncomfortable to the point where you had to expend a lot of mental energy to kind of stay on pace? I'm very shocked by my paces because again, I don't normally run like that in triathlon you can have such major swings and I don't even follow my watch that closely. I, I look at it during a triathlon race, but if I see a crazy time, I don't back off <laughs> really. I might speed up, but I won't slow down. And at CIM, that was really mentally stressful to be following my watch and to know that I couldn't go too fast in the beginning. And, uh, to, and I never honestly felt like I was reining myself in. I remember when I got to like three miles in, I honestly was like, I don't know if I can hold this. Like I'm not holding myself back to hold 615 pace. I, I feel like I'm, I, this is already hard. <laughs> and then around mile 10, I started to feel really good. And that might be a function of the fact that I my races are normally five to 10 hours long. And so it takes me a long time to warm up. And then at mile 19, I felt amazing. And I was like, I'm going to push. I'm going to go a little harder. And then at mile 21, I felt terrible. <laughs> so my amazing feeling lasted about two miles at that weird last part of the race. But um, so when I got to mile 21, that is probably when I was like, oh, oh no, you know, you have a little bit of a buffer, but you, you gotta keep going. And I took two gels in like the last five miles, which again is my, the triathlete in me being like, if you start to feel it the least bit, you know, anything you take in sugar, you know, you get some food in you and that is what I go to. And I think that helped, but I honestly wasn't sure I would make it until I crossed the line, even maybe at two kilometers to go. They had a sign and it was at 40 kilometers. It said I was at like 235 gun time. So I knew I had 10 minutes to run two kilometers. So I felt that I could do that. I was like, you could, you could have a little bit of a, you know, issue and you could still make that. And so it was, 
It was a definitely a very different experience. I would say mostly it was really mentally stressful more than anything. And it was weird to kind of drown out the other people on the course and just be like, follow your pace, follow the clock, and don't try to go catch someone. Don't try to get a gap on someone, which is my normal thought process during a race. So what do you like to do mentally when things start getting, you know, really, really tough? So I have some mantras that I like to say. Um, Sometimes I just tell myself, you're doing great. Like that's honestly one of my favorite mantras because I do feel really proud of myself for just getting on a start line because start lines are scary. You know, you're putting yourself out there. And so that's honestly something I tell myself, even if I'm not doing great, sometimes I will. I'll say, hey, you're doing great. You got out of bed this morning. You got on a start line. You're here. Um, Sometimes I tell myself to enjoy the pain because I'm alive. You know, I feel alive because I can feel that pain. So I'll honestly like even think about it. Like those last couple of miles of CIM, my quads were were pretty tired and I'm like, feel it, feel every painful step and enjoy it because there was a time in your life you didn't think you'd ever get to feel this kind of pain. And it is wonderful to feel soreness. Like soreness is such a wonderful feeling versus the stabbing pain of of a fracture in your leg um, or, you know, just having a huge laceration and not being able to walk around. So I think that that is honestly some of my thought process. And and I will think about, I mean, sometimes I do, I go on crazy tangents and I think about my dog and how cute he is. <laughs> and, um, and that usually makes me a little bit happier or, um, but I try to stay mostly focused on, on race specific thoughts. Now you're in a position where most people at your, at your level, right? People who, who just dipped under the 245 OTQ time are going to head to Atlanta without real without any real prep for that course. And we've heard so much about it between the tight turns and the you know the, the topographical changes on the course and how they've shifted it over the last two months to kind of be more accommodating for the larger crowds and so on and so forth. What do you know about the roads that you'll be running on and what are some of the things that you're going to try to do over the next two months to prepare yourself for that course? I think the first thing is that Atlanta is is pretty hilly. I think that surprises a lot of people because they just think big city, it's probably flat and it has some hills and it um the weather in February could go either way. It could be really hot, it could be really cold. And to be perfectly honest, both of those are features that I love. I think I I do well in hard conditions. And that was a weird thing going into CIM being like, I hope it's really, you know, perfect. I hope that there's a tailwind. I hope everything goes well because I wanted a specific time. But in the grand scheme of things, me as a person um, and from my triathlon experience, hard conditions really favor me. So I like that. And I probably won't be going for a specific time at, in Atlanta. I will be going for for effort, which is more how I race and that excites me. I do love hills. And as far as training, I, I, I don't know exactly what I'll do specifically. I'm, I'm very fortunate in that I have a lot of friends in Atlanta, so I probably can go, I will go to Atlanta early and get out of the snow a little bit and, um, train on maybe on the roads near the course or on the course. And, I think just being ready for for changes in in pace like it will be hard to just have that specific pace when you have turns when you have hills and managing that um either how you kind of don't surge up a hill like allow your pace to slow a little bit and then use gravity when you're on the other side to get your pace up um I think that those are the kind of things that you have to be ready for and then just be ready for for craziness I mean it's it's it could, it probably won't be, um, all smooth sailing. Like you're going to have just other, whenever it's a championship race like that, like people take risks, right. And they go too hard maybe. And I think that sometimes you have to be that person that goes too hard and you have to risk blowing up. And if you blow up, it's like, okay, I, I found my limits, but you might hold on and find out you're capable of more. So I think the whole experience, the, the environment, everything is going to be more suited to my strengths, which excites me a lot. Yeah, I can, I can totally see that. And I love how you're describing it. I was like, okay, time's are out the window. Let's just go compete. 
which is really a fun way to put it and is so different than being very time focused where it's like any little factor between weather and wind and so on and so forth can play such a can have you know such an impact on people especially when they're right at that threshold between making it and not making a certain time whereas now like I love how you described it's like all right any harder element to this race is going to work into my benefit that's the mental construct I'm using Let's go. Let's, let's let's make this happen. And it's just I can see that being a very exciting way to view a competition as opposed to, you know, worrying about every little minor detail and how its impact could affect you personally. Exactly. I, I how I normally race is not necessarily focused on times because triathlon courses are so varied and different. And a lot of the time you're running a marathon at one o'clock in the afternoon on the equator. <laughs> so, um, I'm, I'm okay. And again, how I train at home, I, where some days I am, I'm running 12 minute miles and I know that that's still a good effort. Um, and so I think that that kind of uncertainty really suits me and I'm fine with seeing a wide variety of paces. And I know my effort and I also know, I guess I'm able to put into terms what's good and what's not good on a specific day. But then again, I, I, I also understand there's going to be like 500 women there who are extremely good athletes and, and I'm going to, you know, enjoy being around them and getting to compete with them. And I have no illusions about, you know, making huge time drops in this race, but I, I hope I can kind of feed off of their energy and use them to help get my best. And I think that's all I can ask for on the day. Yeah, absolutely. And all right, last question for you. You've been so generous with your time, and I really appreciate it. Uh, recently, you were the MC of the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit, which is obviously something that I can imagine having a huge impact on everyone who attended. We are at a very unique time right now in terms of this exact topic, especially when it comes to the running world. And we're all aware of what's been happening over the last three months. It's really exciting for this, for people who are already engaged in this topic and people who want to be. So what is your take on just trying to kind of take the bull by the horns in this space and really advocate not only for you know, yourself and for, and for your peers and for your future peers uh, regarding, you know, all things related to this topic? Yes. Oh my goodness. What a question. This is, it is so topical right now. And all the articles that have been coming out in the New York Times, Lindsay Krauss, the the author of a lot of those, or you know, the per the producer of some of those videos, she ran CIM and I um I didn't get to meet her, but I I really admire her. And and I think that from the triathlon perspective, we, you know, at at the highest level, at the Ironman World Championships right now, there's about 50 slots for pro men and 35 for pro women. And we don't have a good reason for why that is, why that inequality exists. And so we, you know, Sarah Gross, who produces um, the podcast that I co-host called the Iron Women Pro Podcast, she started the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit just to kind of show that, hey, we're here, you know, we're part of this sport. We are a force to be reckoned with. And from the media side with the podcast, um, it is, it's like I would listen to other triathlon podcasts or read triathlon media. And I wish they would cover certain stories, certain women I knew that had amazing stories. And eventually you realize that I have to be that person. If I want to see those stories, I need to be the person that helps them get told. And that's one reason why I love the podcast. And I love what my co-host Alyssa Gadeski and I are doing. And it does get hard um, with our own training, but it's very rewarding, even in the sense that, hey, somewhere out there on the internet, you can hear this person's story when before you couldn't. And so I think that's part of it. Just we have to step into, you know, whatever platform we have, whatever, however small it is, even if it's you only tell, you know, the your five friends at the pool that you talk to in the locker room when you're getting ready or, you know, your, your running group, or if you have a bigger platform on social media, I think you have to use it. And, and, you know, whatever you can do to uplift yourself as, as a woman or other women and make this a big deal. And I love what's happening in the running world. It's one of the reasons I stepped into the running world was this hype over the Olympic trials and the women going for it and realizing that 
there are so many women who can run sub 245. Who would have guessed? And all of these women have a community around them and who now care about the Olympic trials, who otherwise probably would have slept in on February 29th. They wouldn't have cared, but instead they're going to be watching. They're going to be cheering. And yes, they might, their person might get 470th, but they still paid attention. They still care. And I think that the sport is embracing that as well and realizing that this is only going to benefit everyone. It's going to benefit men. It's going to benefit women. It's going to benefit everyone, you know, whatever gender binary or socioeconomic status or where you live, um, it's going to benefit everyone. So hopefully that's, you know, the message that's getting out there. And we are all realizing that we can be leaders in our own, whatever small sphere we have. But um, it was, it was great to be the MC. I do love talking if you haven't noticed throughout this podcast. So, um, and I love connecting with, with other people and hopefully getting that message out to beyond our, our sphere, you know, who knows, you never know who's listening. So thank you for letting me come on this platform as well and, and share my story. So I appreciate what you're doing as well. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I love how you put it, you know, it's not just about getting a bigger, you know, bigger slice of the pie, so to speak. It's about making the pie so much bigger as well. Um, and it's, it's, it's certainly something that is a big deal. And I really appreciate all the work you're doing to do just that. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was just so much fun to talk to you about all of this and good luck in your preparation for Atlanta. Thanks so much, Matt. Haley again, thank you so much for coming on the show. What a fun conversation. As you can tell, Haley is a pro at this. And another reason why you should go check out her podcast as well. There's links in the show notes. Uh, she is just a wonderful, wonderful person who's making, um, you know, great things happen within her sport and for the people who are, you know, dedicated triathletes and runners and just athletes in general. Again, Haley, thank you so much for coming on the show. Dear listeners, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Also, if you haven't done so already, please go subscribe to the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast. I know most of you have, but not all of you. I can see the stats. I know some of you are holding out, but believe me, you're not going to want to miss anything. The string of episodes that we've had over the past month and the ones that we're going to have all the way up to the trials I'm telling you, I've already mapped them out. They're really going to be worth it. So go over there and subscribe. I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great day and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.